0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I have a thought on my mind today. It is uh, the idea of cause. Uh, Old Baptists have made a lot of the notion of cause and effect. A lot of our uh, doctrine by some of our ablest elders has been reduced down to cause and effect. Right, what many people say are the causes of eternal salvation among men, we say are the effects of eternal salvation among men. Right, they'll say you do this thing and that's how you get eternally saved, and we say no, you're eternally saved, and that's why you'd ever have any desire to do that thing. Right, uh, this principle is is clearly played out in our lives, and uh, for the most part you find a relationship of cause and effect that's in play in most things. But the Bible talks about things wherein there is no cause or where is something is without a cause. And that makes it a little bit unusual. And I want to unpack that idea of without a cause today. But in doing that, I want to go back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. And we're kind of getting back into our narrative on King David. We're talking about the heroes of the Bible. King David being a... Very important figure in the Old Testament. Clearly a hero of the Bible. 1 Samuel 18. And uh, let me read a little bit here for us. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Sounds like there was a fellowship between Jonathan and David that transcended their natural relationship, whatever that might be. Uh, there was a kinship there. I believe this is very similar to what uh, Brother Sonny was just referencing. Uh, The Bible says there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Kind of sounds like this sort of relationship, doesn't it? And I think any of us can probably look in our own families and and in the people that we know and have Christian fellowship with. uh, We'll find examples where we say, I have more fellowship with this person than I have with people in my own natural family in some respects because we have this spiritual connection And having believed and understood the truth, we understand that we have a successful Savior. And honestly, many Christian people don't really have a successful Savior, not in the sense that we talk about it, like Jesus got the job done. They have a potential Savior, right? But when we talk about a successful Savior, we talk about the peace and the rest that we can have when we can come to the Lord, hear the gospel, and say, the work is finished, And I don't have to worry about that work anymore, right? The fact that I believe it means it's on my behalf and I can, uh, that becomes the overarching context within which we can build a Christian life and a Christian family and a Christian walk. And it's a very stabilizing force among God's people. But this fellowship that we have with one another, I think is modeled here in the relationship between Jonathan and David. And you see that they, they made a covenant. Uh, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. He's like, I love this brother so much, I just want him to have all my stuff. Just take my stuff. You're just, I just love you, right? I mean, that's that's an extraordinary love that you see between these two people and I think it models in many respects the sort of love we can have for one another in the church. That Christian fellowship is incredibly important. Now, we read a little bit going on here about David's exploits, and we've looked at some of this before, but uh, the previous chapter talks about David and Goliath, and we talked a little bit about that story. In verse 5 it says, And David went out, whithersoever Saul, Sent him and behaved himself wisely, and Saul set him over the men of war, and he was escaped in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of. Saul. I'm sorry, he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy. With instruments of music, and the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth. Saul didn't like that one bit. Saul's the king at this time. And if you're the king, you want to be the top dog, but here he is. They're going through the streets and they're hearing people sing a higher praise to David than they had for King Saul. And Saul didn't like that. Um, men tend to be uh, somewhat egotistical about such things. And I mean, we can kind of get down on Saul a little bit, but I'm sure all of us have experienced that in one degree or another. So maybe we should have a mantle of charity about about his uh, sinful attitude, given the ones we've harbored over the course of our lives. But nevertheless, David here, has been a good servant to Saul, right? He came in and killed the Philistine. He's been going out and doing what he wanted him to do. He's done good service. There's really not anything here that, you, that would give Saul a legitimate reason to be angry about this other than his own pride. You see what I'm saying? It's not like I told David to do all these things. He hadn't done any of it. So I'm mad at David. It's not that sort of thing. He's mad over, the fact that, over David's exploits and the fact that people know about these exploits and are singing praises greater than the praises unto him. And that's very troubling to him. And this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? Saul doesn't like this one bit. And it makes him resent David. Now does he have a cause? Does he have a cause to resent David in this way? Or is he resenting David without a cause? I ask that question. In one sense, he does have a cause. The Bible talks about things being without a cause, but that has to be qualified a little bit. Everything's got a cause. See what I'm saying? When we talk about being without a cause, we mean without a legitimate cause or without a legitimate basis for it. It's not that there's no cause at all. The cause is Saul's prideful heart that makes him jealous of David rather than saying, I'm the king and I've got this guy working for me and he's fantastic. It only makes me look better as the king because I've got such great people working for me. That's one of the things you'll notice in the business world. If you've got really good leaders... They're not going to be trying to build themselves up so much as they are looking beneath them and saying, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. These people working for me are doing a great job. This is why we're being successful. And they, are, they, they achieve some level of greatness in the eyes of those beneath them because they recognize, look, I'm not just doing this on my own. I've got all these great people working for me. Some of the best business leaders in the world will tell you, I, I'm just someone who's got great people working for me, right? Um, But Saul's problem was his pride, and he wanted to get all the credit for everything. So there was a cause, but there wasn't a legitimate cause. You see that? He's hating David without a legitimate cause for hating David, because David's been nothing but a good servant. That's what the Bible's speaking of when it says without a cause. It's saying there's not a legitimate basis for this complaint. Now look how bad this can get. So all of us have probably harbored some sort of petty resentment towards someone who's maybe a better, you know, baseball player, or they sing better, or they play guitar better, or they whatever. We've probably all harbored some thoughts like that in our lives. But uh, have you ever really thought about how far that can go? Um, the Lord Jesus Christ taught that if you uh, if if you have hatred towards a brother in your heart. This is the sin of murder. That sounds like a really harsh statement, you know. It's kind of like, really? You think it can't go there? It's the seed that could absolutely grow into the commission of such an act. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever uh, tried to to fulfill on that, uh, or let that seed grow to that extent, but... The heart issue that creates both of those sins of different magnitudes comes from the same seed, I think, is what's being taught there. And Saul eyed David from that day forward. The Bible mentions something about the evil eye. (laughs) I wonder if that's an evil eye he's giving him. He's definitely looking at him in a way that's not uh, charitable, let's put it that way. So, what happens from here? wonder where this issue of resentment and pride and hating without a cause can go. How far can it go? And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house and David played with his hand as at other times and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. Right? It's not just once. He did this twice. I don't know. Um, I think it says something remarkable about David's commitment to serving Saul, that after having had a javelin thrown at him, he was able to come back, continue to serve, and have the occasion for it to happen again. This only further underscores Saul doesn't have a cause. You see how loyal David's trying to be to Saul? And he wants to kill him. He's hating him without a cause. Verse 12 And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. David's still doing the right thing here. And uh, Saul is just afraid of him. There may be people in your lives who see, uh, see you doing things, to serve the Lord, and they don't like you. They don't really have a cause. But some of it may just be, I'm kind of afraid of you. There's a sense that I I know you're kind of doing the right thing, and I'm not. So I'm going to resent you for it. I'm going to kind of fear you as a result of this. It's almost like the Lord is working in your life in a way that He's not working in mine. Blame it on God. But the reality here is that Saul's pride is the thing that's separating him from serving the Lord. He was the Lord's anointed. He could have done very well with that situation, and yet he didn't. Let's skip down a little bit. Let's look at chapter 19, and we'll see something about this fellowship and how it was profitable in this circumstance. And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Well, now it's not just if I get a chance in my chamber here, I'm going to throw a javelin at him, which is bad enough. Now I'm just going to tell the people who work for me, just kill David. I'm done with this. Be very careful about this notion of harboring ill will or resentment or anger towards your brother. You might say, well, I would never let this go to such an extent where I'd want to kill that person. It's the same impetus that exists in the heart that leads to murder. Right? It's a very serious matter and it's something, one of the reasons we should stamp this out and seek reconciliation and fellowship with the brethren. But look here, we said before that Jonathan and David had this strong kinship, this covenant with one another and they were very close friends, they loved one another. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father seeketh to kill thee. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning, and abide in a secret place, and hide thyself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art, and I will commune with my father of thee. And what I see, that I will tell thee. Now, here's a situation where this fellowship he has, this close relationship with another brother in Christ, this person is going to intercede on his behalf in a situation where David's life is at risk here. right When your king says, find this guy and kill him, that's a very serious matter. Um, and here this relationship with Jonathan is going to prove very profitable to David in this situation. You might ask, well, what if Jonathan hadn't been there? Jonathan heard that this was what was going on. He went and told David about it and kind of came up with a plan of how we're going to try to get you out of this. What if Jonathan and David had not built this relationship? What if they hadn't had a covenant? What if they didn't love one another in this way and adore one another and and look out for one another in this way? Well, clearly the Lord could deliver David anyway anyway. But you see here how in this circumstance, the Lord is using this temporal relationship as a mechanism of deliverance for David. It's profitable to David's life in this moment. And Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father and said unto him, Let not the king king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee been to the word, very good. What's he saying there? Don't kill David. You don't have a cause to kill David, right? There's no legitimate cause for you to be going after David like this. And by the way, if you do it, it's just sin. Don't sin in this way. You're doing the wrong thing. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it, and didst rejoice, wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? That's the sort of hatred that exists in the wicked hearts of men. The ability to hate something without a cause. Without a legitimate cause. And it can grow to such a point where it's not just uh, I have a bitter spirit about it, but I am actively trying to kill someone this is why we have to do everything we can uh, to avoid letting this seed sprout roots in our lives and we need to walk in peace and unity with one another and build the fellowship up with one another (laughs) verse six and Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan and Saul swear as the Lord liveth he shall not be slain well that's a good declaration in the moment I think we find that Saul's commitment to that idea wanes tremendously. Nevertheless, in this moment, if you're in a situation where somebody's trying to kill you and another person who's a friend of yours intercedes and that person who's trying to kill you says, Okay, I hear what you're saying. I swear I won't kill him. And he backs off from it in the moment. tells it, Look, don't go try to kill David. I know I told you to to go kill David. We're not, that's not the plan anymore. Let's back off from that. Just forget I said it. Let's move on. Now that doesn't deal with Saul's heart issue, but in the moment it provides a temporal salvation for David. And um, it was instrumental in his deliverance in that moment. Was it not? See the importance of the fellowship of the saints and having those types of relationships. Uh, They can be very profitable and can be an instrument of temporal salvation saving you in various circumstances and that plays out in a thousand different ways and Jonathan called David and Jonathan showed him all those things and Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past so he they got beyond this and kind of got back to normal I guess you would say right but Saul was hating him without a cause Turn over to Psalm 69 and verse 4. David writes about this idea. It comes up kind of thematically in some of the Psalms that he wrote. Uh, I'll read the first three verses to lead up and give you some context. So Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink, deep, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying, my throat is dried, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head, and they that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. David was familiar with the idea of being hated without a cause. I think at the point that he's writing this in Psalm 69, He's not just talking about that instance. He's talking about a whole lot of experiences in his life where he was hated without a cause. Now, David was also a sinner. While he was hated without a cause, there were probably some people over the course of his life that looked at some of the things he did, and maybe they had a cause to be angry with David because he was not perfect. But in this respect, Um, he's talking about being hated when he's doing the right thing and yet people still hate him for it. Look over at Psalm 109 and verse 3. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. You see, the world can raise up hatred towards you and I think we're seeing many examples of it in our society where they're going to start just hating Christian people without a cause without a legitimate cause at all, and they're going to feel as if they're completely justified in it. So how do we respond to that? Look over at Proverbs chapter 3. This is where it gets kind of tough. (laughs) I mean, I think when we're vilified and and people hate you without a cause, you kind of want to think, well, if you're going to hate me without a cause, I guess I'm just going to hate you back. I understand that response. Uh, I have a carnal, I have an old man living in me as well, and he wells up, and that's, that's kind of the default reaction. We have to temper that, however. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 30 says, Strive not with a man without cause. doesn't mean that you're, there's not going to be some instances in your life where you're going to have to take a stand and strive against men. If you are in your house and someone kicks in the front door and has a weapon and intends to do you harm, you have a cause. You follow me? You have a cause to strive with that man. He is imminent danger to you and your family in that circumstance. And there is a cause in that. It's not that we are never to strive because there might be a cause, but uh, that's, Situation doesn't happen all that often, thankfully. And a lot of times we strive with men when there's not a cause there. Uh, Maybe we don't like something about the way they operate or whatever, but they really haven't done anything to you and we're willing to strive with them. If he have done thee no harm, they really haven't done any harm to you, but you don't like the way they operate and so you're going to strive with them a little bit. And this is what we're being advised against. Strive not with a man without cause. So while the world may heap upon you contempt and scorn and, and be hostile towards you, and, and they do that without a cause, you're not to turn around and say, well, I'm just going to do that to them without a cause. We need to have a cause for the things that we're doing, and we need to avoid that temptation. I think something similar is said over in, chapter 24 in verse 28. "Be not a witness against thy neighbor without cause, and deceive not with thy lips." So this idea of cause is incredibly important, and we just recognize this: People are going to hate God's people without a cause. This is a principle established in the Bible. And we are not to turn around and do the same thing to them, right? We're not supposed to treat them that way, even though they treat us that way. Now, where's the example? We're talking about David and referring to him as the, one of the heroes of the Bible, and that's certainly true, but he's also a, uh, a type or a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every imperfection that you find in David's life, you find no such imperfection in the life of Christ. And what did Jesus Christ say about this? Over in John chapter 15, he makes this statement, starting in verse 12. And I say this a lot, and I I try to say it because I want to remind myself of it. I think it's in the domain of what uh, Brother Bonner was setting before us. It's really important, I think, we need to be purposeful about it and not just say it. We need to try to do it. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. <clears throat> ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his lord doeth, but I have called you friends For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Did he have a cause to choose you? Now be careful how you answer that question. You see why it's got to be qualified? There was nothing in you that would cause God to choose you. In that sense, he had no cause to choose you. There was nothing in David that caused Saul legitimately to hate David. It was without a cause. That's in the matter of hatred between men. But in the matter of mercy from God to men, God did not look at you and say, I see a cause for why I'm going to extend mercy to you. See, mercy was extended to you without a cause. There was no legitimate cause to be found in you for mercy to be extended or for you to be chosen. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you that you love one another. He says this several times here. And I think it's important that we actually think about what he's saying here. You know, the Bible talks about you, uh, uh, the older women teaching the younger women to love their husbands. And you might say, well, I mean, don't wives love their husbands? I mean, I've heard her say, oh, I love my husband. It says, husbands, love your wives. You could take that. Well, I mean, I love my wife. And she loves me. It's not talking about that. Whatever that base level thing is that you kind of have towards your spouse. Uh, I love her and she loves me. That's the default setting. So I'm going to ignore this command. This is talking about being purposeful in how you treat and regard your husband and your wife it's something more than just the base level affection that you have towards this person it's something we should think about if someone says do you love your wife we shouldn't be quick to say well sure i love my wife we step back and say well the lord commanded me to love my wife and that can't possibly be just the default level sentiment that i have towards her Neither can hers towards me be that way. It's got to be something more than that because we've been commanded to do it. It's something we're going to step up to and do. The Lord says this multiple times and it's it's important. Verse 18, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. The world hated Christ and if you're going to be Christ-like, do you think... The world's not going to heap some hate on top of you as a result of it. I mean, is it not inevitable? It's absolutely inevitable. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Well, you might say, well, I've got great fellowship with everybody I know that's just as worldly as they can be. That might be an indication that you're more worldly and less Christ-like than you ought to be because to the extent that the world is just can embrace every single thing you do, how could that be possible if these are those that hate without a cause and they see nothing of Christ in you? It's a very convicting thought. Verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, They will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not sinned, but now they have no cloak for their sin. You know, when you put this, you put the Savior in the world, the way Jesus Christ was in the incarnated Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, it draws out, does it not, the hostility of the world. Jesus Christ was like a hostility magnet where the carnal hearts of men were concerned. There's like, there might be some righteous man there and there's a level of hate that the world would have for that. But when they see the perfect Son of God there, it's drawing it out on a whole different level. And that's the sort of thing that the Lord faced. And I think to the extent that we're living uh, in His image that we're conformed to His image and we represent the Lord in this world, we're probably going to find more of that sort of hostility uh, in our lives. Uh, But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not Him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not sinned, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my Father. As, you, as the works of Christ are manifest before an ungodly world, it draws out that hostility. Now there's nothing wrong with the works of Christ. He is righteous. He is our righteousness. There's no cause for them to hate it other than like, saw their own prideful hearts that hate the truth. They love darkness rather than light. It's not a legitimate cause that they hate Christ for. Neither will it be legitimate in hating the image of Christ they might see in you and how you live your life. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause no reason no legitimate reason there was no legitimate reason to hate the Lord Jesus Christ they did it without a cause but I want to show you how that's related to the notion of redemption turn over to Romans chapter 3 and we'll look at this as we close Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the way, what that says is you ain't no working your way to heaven. That's very plainly stated there. By the deeds of the law, you're not going to keep... I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments and get into heaven. That ain't going to happen. By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. There it is. That eliminates about 95% of the professing Christian world in terms of their doctrine of salvation. They don't believe that. They honestly believe there's some requisite degree of keeping the law that is re- that's going to get you into heaven. That's not true. That's works-based righteousness by the deeds of the law. There shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know what he's saying? What the law does is prove that you're a sinner. What it does is it universally proves that no man keeps the law. And since no man keeps the law, if you set up keeping the law as the, as the standard... No one's going to be justified by that standard. You see that? What that means is, whoever's going to be justified in what he's about to say here, there can't be a cause found in you. There can't be a cause that is, well, I kept the law, my flesh did the deeds of the law, and I achieved justification. That's an impossibility. Because by the deeds of the flesh... By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, all that stuff about the law in the Old Testament, all that I was doing was pointing to Jesus Christ. Here's a law. Can't none of you keep it. That's all there is to it. So none of you are going to rise to this standard. But what does this mean now? It means there's one who did and one who can and one who shall. And as we know it in our time, one who did... This finished work kept the law on your behalf. He is our righteousness. And this was what the entire Old Testament was talking about. The law and the prophets. This is what it was alluding to. It was never telling you keep this to gain eternal salvation. It's telling you this is God's standard. You can't live up to it, but there's coming one who shall. That's what Paul's teaching here. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all un. To all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, there it is again. Everybody's a sinner. When you say all have sinned, you're saying you hadn't kept the law. Nobody can. It's not a way to justify yourself. So, how's anyone going to be justified? Here's a strange thought you're going to be justified in precisely the same way that. Saul hated David. You're going to be justified without a cause. Saul, did not ha- Saul hated David, and there was no legitimate cause in David that would cause him to be hated by Saul in that way. It was something evil in Saul that drove him to hate David in that way. He hated him without a cause. No cause, legitimate cause, to be found in David. Eternal salvation works very much the same way in a righteous sense towards God's people. Because God loves you and there's no cause to be found in you for Him to extend that love to you. You're loved without a cause to be found in you. Verse 24 teaches that, "...being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know what that term freely means? Without a cause. You're justified without any legitimate cause found in you. That's what grace is. Grace is the reality that though there is no cause to be found in me, I've been an object of God's mercy nevertheless. I've been a subject of His redemption. And it was given to me freely. That means it was motivated by God. In Saul's instance, he was hostile towards David based out of an ill intent or malevolence in his own heart that motivated him to be hostile towards David without a cause. But God, who is perfect and loving and righteous and who shall save His people from their sins... He saw no reason to save you in you. He did it without a cause. You're justified without a cause to be found in you. And that is salvation by the grace of God. Well, I pray that's a blessing to you. As I think about being justified without a cause, I, I, it's, it's just astonishing to me that this is how it works. It's really so contrary the way our minds work pretty much everything in your life many things in your life are done on a meritorious basis everyone most of us have had a job or been in school or whatever or you're playing sports and you know you're getting rewarded because well i'm the captain of the team because i had showed the most leadership or i you know i'm i'm on the starting squad because i was the best of the fight you know of, of some of the players on the team or i'm I'm the lead hitter or I bat cleanup because they know I'm a good hitter. And we see merit applied over and over and over again. None of those things are without a cause. See what I'm saying? We look for cause and effect. It's like, well, we're putting him there in that position because we see that there's some cause for it. He has some level of talent, some level of application of that talent. He has skills. He has uh, leadership qualities. You go to work, and if work is... Working as it usually does, people who work hard and, and do very well, they get promoted and they get given better positions. And we just see merit over and over and over again in our world, and it gets completely reinforced in our mindset so that you don't really think about things as being without a cause. Think, I'm getting these benefits because of the cause. I got this raise because I worked a lot of hours last year, and they're finally looking at it and they're saying, I see a cause to pay this person more money. That's just how it works. It's not how your eternal salvation works. You're justified freely without a cause. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.